I'm here with Zeno Muller, and uh, where he's calling us from sunny Cal Southern California. I'm in uh, Auckland, New Zealand, and we know that we've got people from all over the UK and San Francisco. Uh, welcome, Zeno. Tell us, Hello. who are you and what do you do? Hello, Rebecca. Great to be online with you. Um, well, for some of you, you know, um, I wrote competitively through the 90s and uh, into 2000. I uh, won a gold and a silver medal in the single skull at the Olympics. And now I am definitely for the last 10 years a coach. Um, I coach in person here in Newport Beach, in the Newport Beach Harbor. Um, uh, because Southern California is not really a amazing rowing mecca when it comes to how many people row here. Um, I do most of my coaching online digitally. I receive um, footage and I do slow motion analysis um, and write training programs and boost egos and uh, make sure some people don't lose their confidence in what they're doing. Um, I'm also at the helm of a not-for-profit organization now that we started to support not just U.S. sculling, but international sculling. And the way a not-for-profit works is if there is a U.S. company or people who are interested in the United States to support international rowing or national rowing, uh, they can make a donation towards supporting uh, people with equipment and uh, home and uh, room and board, and um, it becomes a tax write-off. So that's what I'm up to now, and um, can't wait to chat about the questions that you received, Rebecca. I tell you, I have had a lot of questions in for you, Zina. You're going to be a busy man. So what I've done is I've grouped the questions into uh, themes or categories, and the, there's a whole group which are all about you. People are really curious to learn about Zeno the man. So kicking off, after you won the Olympic gold in uh, 1996, how difficult a decision was it to invest another four years to go all the way through to 2000? You know, after you win an Olympic gold medal, your life gets a bit easier because all of a sudden um, you prove to the people you needed to prove to that you are worthy, you did it. So, you, so having a gold medal was wonderful because for someone like me who grew up in a foreign country everywhere, um, Having having one gold uh, gives you kind of a acceptance internationally that even though I'm a Swiss citizen in the United States, uh, you won a gold medal. Uh, you, it's nice to have you around. You know, you don't come. You're not quite a foreigner. So to to tell you, I got married in December of 1996, shortly after um, winning, and I actually took the year out in 1997. And I took it out because I really thought that I needed to change jobs because I got married. And it was in August where after ballooning to 117 kilograms that, um, that I stepped back into the single skull just to see how it goes. And for the first time in my life, I realized that I actually liked rowing. Now, that is a little bit of a brutal statement, but it's such a love-hate relationship when, when you train to win, and luckily I did win a gold medal, um, and then finally you win a gold medal, and then you say, okay, I'm, I want to quit. And how wonderful it was that August of 1997 to, to realize, oh, I want to do this, I want to keep doing this. And luckily, because I had the medal, etc., the, the support, the financial backbone from Switzerland uh, was still there. And so it was really easy to get back into it. And Marty, my coach, who is now the um, um, uh, uh, head coach in the Melbourne Sports Institute, he, uh, he had no problem with that. He said, Zeno, you're not the first one who, doesn't, who wants to stop rowing after, after they've achieved something major. So I got back into it, and I really, really found the harmony of what I didn't know I was actually having until I had taken a, a break. So that's what, that was me in a nutshell after 1996. I had a great time uh, competing. Um, lost my gold medals at the World Championships to Janssen and to, uh, you know, to um, Rob Waddell twice. Um, 
but a great guy he is. I love him and uh, really enjoy his family. And then in 2000, the, the only race I did, the only race I did before the Sydney Olympics was uh, that World Cup in Vienna. And uh, I ended up winning it um, in front of Rob uh, in some pretty nasty headwind with white caps. Uh, and then I was supposed to uh, to race one more time before I would leave to California to get ready for the Sydney Olympics before leaving for Australia. And there was a, um, I looked at the board, board, boarding uh, information and bloody heck right below Amsterdam, probably three lines below said LAX. And by that time I was already dad of two kids. And I called up very quickly um, the uh, travel agent for the Swiss Rowing Federation and said, hey, 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 can you please, can you change? Can you put me on the, on the plane to LAX, to LA? And she said, okay, sure, this, but did, weren't you supposed to go to Amsterdam right now? I said, yeah, I'm in the terminal, but I want to go home. And so, and, and I miss my family. And the reason why I'm telling you guys this is because I'm a uh, very emotional person, lots of passion. And I tell you, after she said that I, um, I made it into the LAX-bound flight, I called Marty, and I couldn't even t say Marty. I started bawling on the phone. Um, and, you know, here, here I am standing, probably not the smallest Swiss person, at the phone, phone booth there and crying pathetically. But, boy, was I happy when I said to him, I'm going home, I'm leaving, I'm escaping back to... I don't know, back to what, you know, what I guess maybe mattered the most is to be back with the family or, or the pressure. Guess what? The pressure of training by yourself in California, never having had a training partner and in a way assaulting other single scholars uh, in a uh, very sportsman way, sportsmanship way, um, takes its toll you know I went to I went to Vienna ended up winning and then I, it, I I felt like okay I need to get the hell out of here and 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 that is me in a nutshell very um, very passionate very emotional um, I can be very brutal when it comes to channeling passion but you know, I guess it makes me interesting as a coach. I try to be, and I think I succeed as always being very positive, always saying that that glass is half full because the amount of effort um, athletes and coaches end up putting into trying to achieve the best is just, re it's just remarkable. All right, I told you so much. You probably <laughs> thought I was only going to tell you half as much, but Rebecca, <laughs> that was a great what else? What else? So uh, tell me, when, can you remember how your boat was rigged when you uh, won your medals? Oh, yeah, really interesting, by the way. So the World Championship of 1999, right? Um, everyone had their measurements taken. FISA was walking around in St. Catharines, and they wanted um, people's measurement just for whatever to publish it. And I said, eh, I don't care. You, you can go right ahead. So I had 159 span uh, two meter ninety oars with um, I would say eighty eight and a half. Okay, and then a month later, I see all this stuff published, and I look to see what Rob's rig was, and it said not available. And I uh -huh. said, "What? What? Rob, the beast of all ergs, is not saying what his rig is." And I said, "Okay, wait a minute." That can only be because he's rigged lighter than we think, okay? And that made my little okay. hamster in my head spin really fast. Rob and is always so, very, very cautious because we have uh, his, um, he used to train on a row perfect. Yes. And we have his force curve and he's never allowed us to publicize it. Oh, you know, the uh, quick side note, Bat Logic has a uh, foot plate. Uh, that measures uh, pressure on the heel and the ball of the foot, negative and positive pressure. I sat on that bloody thing, and I looked at the curve, and it made total sense how I moved the boat. I said, do not, do not share this curve either. But, um, but Rob, Rob, didn't, Rob didn't tell. And so I thought, okay, wait a minute, that's weird. He's got to be rowing with a lighter rig. And so I called up Concept2 at the time, and I said, guys, 
send me some send me some adjustable oars. I want to try something out. And so from two meter ninety, whoa, I went down to two meters eighty eight. I mean, we're, I mean, look, two centimeters, right? You think no big deal. But I realized that rowing at two eighty eight didn't make me any slower. So my thought was, then why the heck should I be rowing as two meter ninety when I can do the same thing as two eighty eight? Fabulous. That's a great, great, great so, anecdote. You know, so I went to 288, and as we know now, people are gravitating towards shorter oars, which make total sense because not everyone has the same reach as Mahe at the catch. And, you know, if you bring the span of the oarlocks in, you have to have shorter oars. Sure. And so uh, just, I just, think we'll see the change in the next, uh, in the next few years. Great, you know, right, I'm going to keep you tighter on shorter answers. Sure, sure, we'll move, sure. We're going to move on to some questions to do with coaching technique. Yeah. I've had a couple of questions asking, what is the skeletal hang? You talk about it a lot. Can you explain it to our listeners? You know, it's funny that I would coin something a certain way that has not been used before, even though Harry, Harry Mann, who taught me, and then uh, all the uh, disciples of Harry and friends of Harry, would would teach the same hang, right? But for me, when you hang off the skeleton, you're not hanging off any tight muscles. It's like you have a skeleton and you you pull on the skeleton and everything that connects is just simply the bones connect to um, the hip while the legs drive and uh, the only uh, point of attachment is the fingertips. So at no point in your upper body is there any contraction. And so that is zero contraction means that the only thing that connects you to the face of the blade through the footboard is the, um, the chain of bones. That's it. Fantastic. And if anyone's interested in hearing Harry Mann's rowing technique, there's a DVD which we sell, which we videoed in 1994 of him talking about uh, his rowing technique, which was just after he left Switzerland when he coached you. Yeah. Now, questions about um, the feet. We have a question, should we keep our heels down at the finish or just try and keep the whole foot in contact with the foot plate? Well, when you see what's interesting is when you ask rowers to be barefoot standing on the ground, and you ask them, okay, go all the way down into a squat position. A lot of the rowers end up um, gravitating towards the ball of the foot when they are when they are coming down, and then they're pushing through the ball of the foot all the way to being upright. But they never really connect through the heel. But when you connect through the heel, you end up using the glute muscles, the hamstrings, and the more supported lower back. Um, Thomas Lange, we talked to him about this, he was taught to push off the ball of the foot at the end of the stroke. Marnie McBean was taught to keep the heel pressed against uh, the footboard. So Thomas Lange's coach was Lothar Traville from East Germany, and then Al Morrow was the coach of Marnie McBean uh, being taught to keep the heel on the footboard. I don't think Harry ever mentioned what the heck I was supposed to do with the heel, but I'm a heel pusher in the finish. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you have a lot more control with the heel on the football to finish. Mm, that's interesting. You draw the boat under, you know. But then Thomas Lange's answer was, well, if you accelerate enough, you, you come off the heel like you do a... Um, a Olympic, uh, Olympic, um, um, uh, Olympic lift, and and I said, yeah, but my my then I said, yeah, but the, you don't accelerate the boat as much, you know. And to me, matter of the turnaround point at the finish, how smooth can you be, and how soon can you engage the hamstrings before you actually draw the boat back under? That is so key. Um, and but you know it's interesting. You, see, you Jamie Coven, who was taught by Spracklin, he was totally coming off the heel at the finish. He was wearing these really big wool socks in 1997 at the World Championship when I took the year out, and I decided 
that can't be right that he's going back and wins the gold medal at the world championship. I better come back and um, shatter his dream of more gold medals. Just uh, kidding here. But anyhow, what I was going to say is that I keep the heels on the footboard because you have more connection and better control over the boat. I'm not a ball pusher offer. Moving around to, you started to mention the finish there. There's been an emergence of some rowing crews having slow hands away or perhaps a delay before they push their hands away at the finish. What do you think are the advantages and disadvantages of this change in rhythm of the stroke? You know, um, I guess more than one road goes to Rome. I mean, I understand in a way that if you have a really good sense of how to put the blade into the water at the catch, then you can rush, I didn't want to call it a rush, but you can speed into the catch if your turnaround point is flawless. And, you know, you can let the boat run at the finish by just sitting there. I mean, I sit there, but my hands don't stop. You know, I make sure that the hands travel away, that there's never a stop of the handle. In my opinion, and in Harry Mann's opinion, and Marty Aitken, and a whole bunch of people who have seen success as coaches and rowers, they will always say that the handle speed coming to the body and moving back away is similar to tossing a ball against the wall and it comes off at the same similar speed. That to me then also goes into the point where your acceleration of moving the boat stops when the hands and back are away and the legs are straight. That is when the recovery starts. Your acceleration, your acceleration is over when the arms and body are over and the legs are about to rise up. That is when your recovery starts. Fabulous. How do you recommend keeping the left wrist flat when you're uh, extracting the ore out of the water? Clearly, this person has a problem with their left well, wrist. You, but you know, I say it's a combination. You can, there's so many moving parts to the body. I think all different parts do, to a certain degree, um, get engaged in it. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people, when they are rigged through the pin, far through the pin, they end up having a bunched up a finish position. And then um, they don't really have the room to lower the handle down um, on the side of the ribcage because they have to lean back and then they, they, they have a stomach that's in the way. Mm -hmm. So what they end up doing is they, they kind of feather the blade out of the water. And as soon as you feather the blade out of the water, you will be someone who will break the wrist because you cannot go any further down with the handle. Harry, Harry always taught us um, that we need to be able to sit at the finish um, as if we were able to sit there all day long. But if you have a layback because you need to avoid the handle from hitting you in the chest, you cannot sit there all day long because at one point or another, your ab muscles are going to burn off your body. <laughs> Good point. If you had to concentrate on one element of technique to make the boat faster, what would it be? Um, placing the blade in the in the water at the right time. How, how 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 you place the blade in? Catch the catch. I've seen. I've looked at. I've looked at um, different pictures that were posted on Facebook, and getting raving for the beauty of the picture. But you see all these rowers at full extension, and but the blade is uh, the blade is about five, eight centimeters above the water. <laughs> and then you look at Murray Bond and um, the two women who won the pair. I did this analysis between Murray Bond and the, the women's pair that won the gold medal at the Olympics. And bloody heck, you, would, you were able to see that that blade was a quarter buried, if not half buried, by the time um, both crews were at their fullest extension. And yeah. that is, that's what gets you the gold medal. Not the brawn, not it's just it's just how you do it. You know the 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 Polish quad that won the uh, 2008 Olympics, they were so obscenely fast 
And when you did when you did the slow motion study of them, which I didn't even bother doing, um, because I would be ripping apart their style to no end to just say in the end that look, guys, all four can row completely differently, but if they put the blade in at the right time, it's going to be fast. And that's what the, that's what the Polish quad was. When and how the blade gets put in, and zero zero body movement to the bow until until a chunk of the blade is in the water. Fabulous. I want to move on to talking a little bit about Masters rowers. I think we've got quite a few on the call today. First question is, what are your best flexibility exercises for Masters? You know, Masters rowers, by the way, um, there's something really interesting about Masters rowers for me as a, as a coaching business, is that Masters rowers are very competitive. And they want to improve because they have a score to settle with a few people that they may have raised in high school. And they're also the ones with the money. And uh, since I'm a paid professional coach, I have a few masters rowers that are just that, really competitive and want the score to settle. Now, the flexibility issue is all at the hip joint. Hip joint issue. Because most people are not taught enough to hinge at the hip joint and don't have an underdeveloped glute muscle, they have a short hamstring, and they open up their backs too soon, just all because there is no flexibility in the hip joint movement. As soon as you start teaching people to keep their legs straight longer, like we do at body over postures, and then you say, okay, look, you, you can reach that much at the body over pause drill, but when you start rowing continuously, um, your knees come up with the hands barely passing the knees. So there is a potential of improving without doing much stretching, just by simply making masters rows aware that they can improve technically through the pause drill, but then you can really make them improve once they do certain certain stretches where you lay on the floor with the, with the towel wrapped around your foot and the reason why the towel is wrapped around the foot is you're going to stretch that leg where the foot is pushing against the towel mm -hmm. and by having the back flat on the ground you're isolating the movement of the femur without uh, compromising the lower back and that is, so that's the thing about um, moving from the hip joint is that when you drive the stroke the spine is actually being stretched out. Mm. Um, the, German, the, the German women that went to the 2012 Olympics in the women's pair, they burned my retina because what they ended up doing is they open up their backs at a leg compression that is almost, almost maximal. So, and then they end up pushing their legs against a rounded back and they have a stroke where their spine gets compressed through, the, through their technique. And what we were always taught with the skeletal hang is that the spine is being stretched. But that is something that I did not hear from Harry. That is something that I had started to think, okay, how do you verbalize? How do you explain to people what the spine is supposed to be doing? The spine gets stretched out when the tilt of the pelvis is in the right position. The back is being stretched out. If you have people, masters, who cannot hinge at the hip joint, who have a rounded lower back, really powerful legs, the pressure that's building up at the most rounded point of the back ends up one is pushing against the spine, the other one is pulling on the spine, and that is where the this disc can slip out and give you these darn um, um, problems down the leg. Fair warning, thank you. So, next question is about a novice Masters 8. Uh, this questioner would like to know any drills for getting their novice 8 balanced. Well, one thing is for sure, if a boat lifts one side all the time, an 8, um, don't tell the lifting side to try to pull the handle higher and pull harder. That actually perpetuates the problem, okay? What is really interesting to do is have them row feet out, okay? And when you have everybody row feet out and you show them what position they are supposed to have 
with their upper body and straight arms before they raise their knees the boat will go on keel the reason why the boat will go on keel is because all of them end up connecting to the footboard the right way by hinging the upper body onto their straight legs and the movement, the pressure is then vertically directed downwards with the heels so that the balance comes from how you sit on, this, on the seat and how you're connecting to the footboard. If the knees come up too soon, the center of gravity of the upper body stays above the hip joint and then you have the least amount of control over the footboard and therefore over the boat. The, okay, so that's right. great. I, I mean, I could go on, and you know what? That's what I love to do. I I get these footages, these digital footages, and it's like I I am certainly a better pair of eyes than a coach could have ever thought getting by sending off some digital footage. Thank you know, you. I mean, it's 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 magic. I mean, truly, I feel great doing it. And if someone had asked me, uh, what do, what can I compare myself to? I'm like a rowing radiologist. <laughs> okay. I'll put that on your next business card, so you know. A row, rowing radiologist. All right. We're going to move on to talk a little bit about Row Perfect, and I'm going to start with a, uh, an announcement, which if you don't know it already, and you're going to Henley Royal Regatta this year, we're very pleased that the Henley stewards have invited us to put Row Perfect into the Ergo warm-up tent, which means that you'll be able to check them out for yourselves. In fact, what I'm hoping is you'll find all of the range of dynamic and static ergs there, so I'm hoping that athletes will take the opportunity to go and try them all and send us some feedback about the comparisons between how they all feel. So for yourself, Zeno, a dynamic, row perfect, or static ergs best? If you row a lot, uh, you want to be on a dynamic. If you are just going to row 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes at a time at a moderate pace, it really doesn't really matter, okay? Um, what I know is that I really enjoyed rowing row perfect. I was really happy to get um, finally a machine from Concept2 that was dynamic. Um, the Concept2 static on sliders is, couldn't be any more clumsier and taking up so much room, which was a pain for me when I was uh, running an indoor rowing studio because all my ergs were on those sliders. Had I had row perfects back then, Instead of only able be able to fit fourteen machines into the room, mm -hmm. I could have had twenty eight. Mm -hmm. um, and the same thing with the newest model from uh, from uh, from anyone from from was it slider or row perfect. But the beauty about a dynamic rowing machine is that it mimics what the boat does, and that is really really important from a coaching point of view. On top of that you can then watch at what point the handle starts actually moving. If you row the way I explained earlier, you're going to see that uh, in comparison to the ground, the handle moves very little when you drive the first three quarters of the leg drive, if you do it right. Okay? And that is something that you can the bloody heck not see if you have a static rowing machine on the ground stationary. It is really difficult. If, okay, no, it's not difficult for me to teach someone how to row right on a static rowing machine. But it is difficult to teach someone to row on a static rowing machine if the coach has not fully understood that even on a static rowing machine, you're going to hang off the leg drive. It is far easier on a, on, a, on a row perfect or any other dynamic rowing machine to explain that you're pushing the footboard away. You're not pulling the handle away from the flywheel or wherever the flywheel is if it's in front of you. So you can, you can explain the rowing stroke so much better. And let's go back to the one-legged drill. Rowing the one-legged drill on the uh, dynamic uh, setup whether it's row perfect or any of the others, it works really well. Now, if some of you have seen 
that I'm also involved with water rower. Okay, and I know it's, there was a question about resistance setting with water rower. What I loved about the water rower, I, I changed from Concept2 on sliders to water rower because Concept2 didn't give a flying hoot that I was um, championing the indoor rowing um, industry. Now everybody has it, but I was the first one truly on the block that was doing it um, as, as much as, as I did. Now, I quit Concept2 and I said, I need to find another rowing machine, so I found the water rower. Now, people got pretty mad at the indoor rowing studio when I did this because all of a sudden, from a dynamic setup, I got onto a static and they didn't like it. So, when, so, yeah. so that's the thing is, if you are on a dynamic machine, being on a static will feel super weird. So if you were training an athlete now, would you use the Row Perfect? Absolutely. Absolutely. We've now, if you train an athlete who has to compete at the Crash B and who wants to get into a university for admission and only static rowing machines are used at the officially sanctioned satellite regattas, I would say, look, you need to spend time on a static machine also because it trains the muscles slightly differently because you're moving your body back and forth. On the row perfect, you don't quite do that. So it is different. It is a different movement. We've but if you have someone in the boat, you definitely want to teach them and train them as much as possible on a static machine because it is what rowing without oars should be like. We've got a question from Dan following up on your heel down technique. Do you think you can work on that on the static machine or do you think a dynamic machine is necessary? No, you can, you can row. Look, it's the draw of the handle to the body that keeps you on the footboard. And it doesn't matter whether you are moving away from the footboard or not. It's actually a, a lot easier to stay on the heels on a dynamic machine it is harder to stay on the heels on a stationary machine because you're moving yourself away, you're, you're moving your inertia. But the, the vector, the power vector, goes in one direction with the legs, but the opposing vector comes into play with the draw of the handle to the body. The draw of the handle to the body presses you against the footboard. The push, the initial push of the legs, moves you away from the footboard, but the draw pulls you back onto the footboard. That's why rowing feet out is so important when it comes to uh, rowing on the water. Fabulous stuff. Now I want to move on to a few questions that are specifically about coaches and the coach relationship. Um, we've got an interesting question here. How do you coach an athlete to become independent of their coach, i.e. to work hard and maximize the benefits when the coach actually isn't present? The the better the coach, the easier it is for that coach to coach people to coach themselves. If the coach is cryptic in their description of what rowing technique is supposed to be, it is really difficult for the athlete to be thinking about anything constructive when the athlete is told to row 90 minutes on the rowing machine. If the, if the athlete doesn't know, if the athlete was never shown in front of a mirror, what they're supposed to look like, they won't know that they can actually use a mirror. Um, a coach that is not on top of his game doesn't <coughs> use heart rate watches. So the tool of heart rate watch is not there. So there's so many uh, moving, moving, uh, moving parts that the coach that's not on top of his game is completely forgetting to mention or doesn't know how to mention to an athlete who would absorb that immediately because they're bound to be training for 90 minutes at a time either on the water or on a rowing machine and they know that it is so important that they train because they don't want to lose so it is so so that is how you teach an individual an athlete to train right is to give them checklists tools 
to follow and to understand when they're doing it right and how it's not done right. Technical drills. So many technical drills are mentioned but not described how to do them properly. So you have an athlete who does a body over pause drill, but the knees are already flexed with the, with the knees up and the lower back is, um, is rounded. So he is doing a pause drill, but the pause drill is done wrong. So it perpetuates the same problem. Um, That's great, Zeno, because uh, I'm going to chip in there and say when we finish this call, I'll send around a hyperlink to some of the technical drills that we have written up right. in great detail so that if you're teaching them as a coach or doing them right. as an athlete, you can learn exactly how they should be done. The other thing, the other thing that's pretty chronic is that uh, mental burnout and physical burnout because of the fact that science is not being used in coaching. Here in the United States, and I'm sure there are other places, um, the athlete is being questioned about their mental toughness when they don't uh, attain new personal bests. And the training method to coaches who question the mental toughness of their rowers are those coaches who make the athlete train as hard as they can and they feel like poo every time they're done with their practice on a daily basis. Those are the coaches who end up pointing the finger about whether or not their athletes are tough enough or not. And I'm telling you one thing, it's like having a uh, sports car, a Ferrari, and you put an elderly man in it who's completely mellow, okay? Or you put this really hyper person into a beater car with zero horsepower. The guy in the, the hyper person, they want to race like crazy, right? The mellow man in the sports car, he's going to press that gas pedal down exactly the same amount, and he's going to go a lot faster. And that is the same thing with training. If people don't, if the coaches don't understand that they're chronic. Now, um, and then I'll quit on that. So we have people like Spracklin make medals at the Olympics in the eight. And then you have the U.S. that make medals uh, or close to it. And, and then you wonder, you hear of all these insanely hard training camps. People are just wasting away and the, only the ones who, 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 who rest standing will make the boat, okay? But then you have to wonder, if that is how you make that aid, you know that in that field, everybody trains the same crazy stuff so that whatever boat is going to win is using this crazy training stuff, um, meaning overtraining. And so if you have teams that overtrain, well, in the end, whoever optimizes their overtraining will end up winning. Now, the Germans won the Olympic gold medal, okay? And I know the Germans watched their lactate. I know it. And they optimized their rowing in their aid with um, measurements and uh, a few scientists made measurements of the speed of the oar handle and the seat. I did not see this in the other, on YouTube of other teams. They ended up optimizing what they had. Um, so I'm a big, big, uh, my hair stands up on my back when I talk about overtraining because it's chronic and I'm glad I was not overtrained because I don't think I would have won a gold medal had I been someone who was taught to overtrain. That's really interesting. We have a blog post that went up yesterday on the Row Perfect site called Who Pays for the Gold Medals? And uh, one of the things that uh, people have uh, pointed out is that some of the best trainers in the world um, have come through uh, from buying the successful coaches from one country to support their country at the next yeah. Olympiad. Yeah. So, what do you see as the biggest challenge for athletes who want to become coaches? Well, the problem here is that good coaching in the United States, for example, is not really readily available because coaching positions aren't really paid for um, positions where you can say, okay, I can imagine becoming a uh, father and a husband 
being a rowing coach. So by default, anyone who actually has certain qualities to become a rowing coach may gravitate towards another job where those qualities that are dearly needed to be a good coach in rowing are also needed in a different job that pays more, okay? So you end up having, by default, you end up having people who end up coaching who should not be coaching, okay? That is, that is just the flaw in, in, in how, how coaching is looked at um, here in the U.S., for example. Um, but if you compare rowing to, let's say, baseball or football here in the United States, um, it's absolutely normal that you end up finding a coach uh, outside of your team, and it's totally accepted by the main team's coach that the athlete gets outside help. Here, um, in rowing, um, it's like such a little turf war about it, and um, where, where the insecurity of some coaches make the rowers very, very hesitant in getting outside help, okay? Because, in a way, they, they think they're losing control over their athlete. Now, I mean, you can hear how, um, how enthused or the, how much you feel my passion in all this, because here I am, you know, I am a resource that I, I so often get tapped into, <laughs> and they say, I, I, no one knows that I'm doing this. <laughs> and I said, okay, I understand. I mean, I understand. And then, but then some, but kudos to a couple of the Ivy League coaches who have sent me footage. And that is, now that is remarkable. A couple of Ivy League coaches sent me footage and they have improved. And they said they're coming back for more okay. and earlier and not just three months before the uh, Eastern Spring Championship. So, so. That is probably the toughest nut to crack, is to tell a coach who has been established for years that they come to the realization, hey, it would be kind of interesting to hear from someone else. And that someone else, um, there aren't that many, so here I am, right? Um, I'm probably the only one who does this. I'm the only one on the face of this earth with the medals who's done it, who preaches skeletal hang which which harry harry was so successful at it and um you know um rowing obsession that was written by martin cross okay he had a chapter about harry and he he wrote and he gave me goosebumps down my back when i read that he said you would always able to recognize harry man's crews because the rowers would be ghosting along and that is, I know exactly what that is, ghosting along. And then you have uh, Greg Searle um, in 2009. He was doing a trial in the single skull to get back into the Olympic uh, team. And he was asked um, who his coach was. And the Harry had passed away in 2001. But then he said in 2009, he said, Harry Mann. And then perplexed, the person says, but Harry's no more. And then Greg Searle said, yeah, but Harry is his voice that I hear when I'm rowing along. That doesn't surprise me. That's a fabulous story. Yeah. We're going to move on to the last section of questions, which are about coaching and crews. We have a question here for someone who's training a very large group of novices. They say over 100 athletes. Do you think it's a good idea to teach them only the catch till they get it right, i.e. forget everything else for the first few sessions? See, I would say we should all learn somewhere else. And that is go, go into a beginning prima ballerina class, ballet class. And all us coaches, and I'll include myself because I've never watched uh, ballet classes taught for beginners. But what you end up seeing is that, and the reason why I'm saying ballet is because rowing is ballet in boats. You want to row as elegantly as ballet uh, dancers dance, okay? So you don't just teach one thing. You can't, I mean, 
people would get bored out of their minds. I'm going to pitch in there. There's a really good, if anyone hasn't seen the World Rowing uh, YouTube channel, there is a good interview on there with the um, identical twins who row for the Dutch Federation in the lightweight men's double. In it, they discuss how they go to ballet classes. Uh -huh. uh, they said they both laugh about it and they said we don't talk about it much but uh, we do and uh, they got the idea again from um, uh, another, someone else they said we just think this will help our rowing absolutely absolutely so that link is uh, in the text chat you know it's it's interesting um, no you want to you're teaching a dance you're simply teaching a dance and if someone is, is a good dance teacher, if you can copy someone who teaches dance well to beginners, that is how you teach a large amount of uh, ro novice rowers how to row. Thank you very much. That's a great, great question. I've got a, a, another question about high school rowers. Uh, should they lift weights? I think... Um, you know, I've come across a couple kids now who uh, who have been 400-pound deadlifters, so 200 kilos, roughly. That was more weight than I ever bothered lifting uh, throughout my adult uh, rowing career. Um, but one thing that's interesting about that is, so they have the ability to lift heavy weights, but when it comes to 2,000-meter um, erging, they were hovering around 640. And I said to them, hey, good news. You can lift 400 pounds, but you can be 25 seconds faster. And that is what happened. That's what happened now five times in a row. I had kids who came in at 640 with heavy, with ability to lift more than I could ever lift. And one were, a couple were lightweights, and then a couple were heavyweights. And just simply explaining how they can use all that recruited muscle fiber into a rowing stroke, they saw how fast their splits started to drop. And of course, um, we ran their lactic acid and then we had them train at the right intensity for three weeks. And um, all of them got the 20 seconds faster on the erg uh, within six months. Now, I like lifting... Um, or strength training because it's something else to do. It's something else to work the body with. And I'm, I'm a, I'm a big-time proponent to working the antagonist muscles twice as much as the main rowing muscles when you do that. But I'm also, but I'm also really big in increasing the resistance in the boat. Um, and maintaining the right heart rate so you don't overtrain, and therefore building more specifically your rowing muscle strength by recruiting more muscle fibers because you are having more um, resistance in the boat. That's how I would approach it. I would I would do it on land to to. On land, you can teach people how to use their body. And now a word of caution as big as my house. CrossFit. The idea of CrossFit, of doing all sorts of different things, sounds really good. Okay? But the issue is, CrossFit is there to make you feel that you're working really hard by pushing you faster and faster and more and more aggressive. And the problem is, all these young kids who are growing bigger, they're always in a tug-of-war between the length of their bones and the length of their muscles, which in turn makes hinging at the hip joint, supporting the lower back, that much more uncomfortable. So the CrossFit idea is to push hard and harder, and all of a sudden, you start having people who are doing the movement the wrong way. And the idea of functional training gets lost to pain, where, where pain is what the people are after. I, I think functional training, functional strength training is wonderful because you don't need heavy weights in order to... Um, get stronger. For example, squats, right? 
I think squats are so totally outdated for rowing. You can do a one-legged squat, and you actually have you, twice the body weight on your one leg. Sure, you can do a one-legged squat with extra weight, but you don't have to put 400 pounds on your back in order to do that. You can only do it with 150 pounds with one leg. You know, so there's a lot smarter way of going about it and injury-free, staying injury-free through strength training the right way. It's a, it's a huge, it's, a, it's like a loaded weapon. Just make sure that, that you're not looking down the barrel. Rightio, thanks either. Now we're going to take questions from the listeners and they've started putting them into the text chat on the window on the screen. Uh, Dan's got the first question. With regard to strength training, what drag factor do you recommend for 30 minute rate 20 ergs? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. hang on. I, yeah, go ahead, Aaron. Um, my dear wife just asked something and um, okay, about drag factor? Yeah, drag factor for 30 minute rate 20 ergs. Um, I think, in general, um, those ergs uh, uh, are rowed too low of a drag. Um, but then the problem is, the cryptic coaches who don't really see what the issue is, they will stay away from higher drag because they know that if the load is heavier, people can get hurt. But if you hang from the skeleton and hinge at the hip joint, your spine does not get compressed at one particular spot, it gets extended. So therefore, you can recruit a lot more muscle fibers with higher drag. Um, Rob, Rob, um, Rob and I came together about, I think in 2007, he came to visit. And I said, you need to, you need to be at higher drag. And then he said, oh, really? And I said, yeah, just go to a higher drag. And then he broke 5,000 meters on the erg. Uh, in 40, he broke 15 minutes doing a 5K on the erg. That is a 130, slightly below 130 per 500 meter average. That is impossible to do if you're at um, drag three and four. Okay, when you're at drag three and four, you only use so many muscle fibers to push the load. There you go. <laughs> so that was Rob Waddell, fantastic. And yeah. what about, do you recommend the same drag for 2K prep pieces? No. You, you train, you train at higher drag, but, but you find your sweet spot. I mean, you have to. See, people, it sounds really simplistic what I'm saying is, the, the drag knob is there to be pushed around. So when you row along and you do different things, don't just think that that drag knob is a station, uh, you can't move it. You have to move it. And what you end up finding is that at a certain drag, you're going to get more bang for your, for your stroke very easily and less effort, you know? Sounds ideal to me. Right, John's got a question asking, do you know, are you still running your commercial gym program and how's it going? You know, I stopped running the indoor rowing studio for a couple of reasons. One is, in that regard, I was a lousy marketer. Then second is I could not duplicate myself. Third, I love giving 150% in the classes but that was tiring, and I don't think I was as good of a parent and a husband uh, when I was coming out of it. Now, had this made me uh, independently wealthy, maybe I would have done it a bit longer. But because I was only as good as people would come in over the threshold of my door, um, I did not build more outside outside uh, uh, market share. Um, do I feel a lot more comfortable doing what I'm doing now? Yes, absolutely. Um, I know I learned a bunch of it. Um, you know, it's just, you know, I had four kids and, and if you have a brick and mortar uh, business, you have to be in that brick and mortar business, uh, physically, really. Um, and especially when, when you're trying to explain a, 
a rowing sport or a sport where it is so technical. And so many people hate rowing indoors because it becomes so boring. But because I was able to talk people through 45 minutes without a problem, it was interesting. But you cannot duplicate yourself. There's just not the same chemistry. And, um, and it was good while it lasted. Boy, was I happy when I stopped. <laughs> That's fabulous. Right, our last question is uh, from Jay Courting. Um, regarding monitoring athletes, how do you check that your own athletes aren't overtraining the guys that you're coaching? Well, you have to do lactate testing. You just lactate test them and make sure that they are, um, they're in the right, uh, right training zone. And you do step tests, not step tests as in stepping on steps, but in a different intensity, uh, intensity testing. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Um, once you explained how to do it, um, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, I have these four courses um, on my website. Uh, you know, I've got my little store at store.xenocoach.com. And um, the first one is for total beginners. Then uh, the other one is how to focus and get organized seven days prior to your 2K, okay? Because a lot of people make these mistakes where they do something to get themselves uh, more calm by rowing really, really hard. And so um, that kind of defies the purpose when you try to get ready for a 2K several days later. And then the other one is... Um, Sculling Fundamentals, and uh, that was a lot of fun. All three were a lot of fun to film, but those are resources for coaches who need to develop their vocabulary and their how to communicate um, what they want their rowers to accomplish. Um, the courses come with future digital uh, coaching analysis uh, discounts, and then in the end, you can also see how I work with, um, with footage that I receive online. And usually, usually my, my, um, my commentary for somebody who sends me two minutes of footage is usually about 25 minutes long. But it changes. It changes their outlook and feel of the rowing stroke and their experience altogether. Um, you know, I, I, I hope that everyone who was listening sees that I feel very uh, passionate about it and that I'm not trying to um, be cryptic. <laughs> I, hate, I, hate, I hate it when, when people are cryptic. <laughs> Zeno, you're never cryptic. But we have got a cryptic question here. Vitality is asking, what about spiroergometry testing on the rowing machine? So, so he, wants to, he wants to test the, um, the air. He wants to test the, the, the lung, the lung, uh, the lung capacity or the um, VO2 max. or the VO two max. I, I think if you if you test somebody's VO two max, it has to be on the erg. I mean, it's not really um, you know, being on a stationary bike uh, will not give you the same reading as when you're erging. Um, does a VO2 max test really tell you uh, whether you should be competing or you shouldn't? I don't think so. I think um, VO2 max testing, in my opinion, is a little bit overblown. Um, what should be tested is your ability to push up the um, lactate threshold. And with the right training, you end up seeing how much you're going to be improving. That sounds like a great place to end. Personally, I hope I never have to do a VO2 max test. They look horrible. <laughs> We're done. You know, We're around the block. We'll leave it to the younger folks. It's been absolutely marvelous having you on Rowing Chat. Thank you so much to everyone who's attended, listening. Thank you for your energy and engagement and questions. We'll be putting the recording up as ever on SoundCloud and we'll send a link to you if you signed up to receive and uh, join us. So you'll get everything on there and I'll also include some links to some of the things that we discussed during the chat if you want to research things further. Any feedback or advice for us on how to improve Rowing Chat? suggestions and recommendations for future guests all gratefully received send it to becky b-e-c-k-y at rowperfect.co.uk which is now right, in the chat for you thanks Zeno. bye you guys bye, thanks bye. everybody bye.